If you have your Bibles, please join me in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to spend the summer here in the first few chapters of this book. We're calling this series simply In the Beginning, and that's based on Genesis 1.1. As I've spent some time studying this book over the last month or two, I don't think it's an overstatement to say what you believe about the first three chapters of Genesis will shape everything else you believe about this entire book. There is so much in the beginning verses, in the beginning pages of Genesis that is foundational to what we believe and understand about God. Just in this very first chapters of Genesis, we learn about God in his creation, in his character. We learn about mankind and the themes of sin and salvation are introduced. According to my research, Genesis is quoted or referenced 228 times in the New Testament. It is a crucial book with an important message for us today. And this morning, we're simply going to look at just the first two verses. We're going to spend a few moments by way of introduction. If you found your place in Genesis chapter 1, God's word begins this way. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Wow. There's so much there, but I, I want to I just uh, give a, four, a, a few points of introduction as we get ready to study this book. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Uh, it's, it's the first book of the Torah. It's the Hebrew term for law. The Torah was the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, the, the name of the book of Genesis comes from the first word that, of the Hebrew Bible, Bereshit, in the beginning. And we've coined the term Genesis. It actually comes from the Greek translation of the Pentateuch, which means origin. A very apt title is Genesis is all about origins. The origin of the universe, the world, life, the origin of the human race, of language, of culture, of sin, of crime and punishment, of industry, of art, of marriage and families, and the origin of God's chosen people. Genesis is all about origins, beginnings. And we read here, in the beginning, God. We're also told that uh, uh, by, by history, by Jewish tradition, that it was Moses who penned these first five books. Many liberal scholars have attempted to uh, introduce other ideas, uh, saying that it's a later composition by various uh, other writers. Um, if you're interested in getting down into those um, 18th and 19th century debates, you're more than welcome to. We're not going to spend much time there because it is a, it is a big mess of um, detail and unnecessary confusion. Um, but most likely, uh, scholars think that Moses would have written this sometime after the Exodus as the, as the Israelites were finding their place or perhaps during the wilderness wanderings. Um, and, and Moses uh, began to compose these, these truths from Genesis along with the law that he was given up on Mount Sinai. We see here, and I think I wrote this in your notes, you didn't have to write it down, I was 
trying to just wrap my mind around a theme for Genesis, a big picture uh, that, that, would, that would capture all of the rich and complex themes that are going on in this 50-chapter book. And I wrote this down. In Genesis, we see the one true God in his faithful covenant-keeping love continuously pouring out his grace upon sinful man. That is the heartbeat, that the flow of Genesis, that there is a God and there is none other like him. And he has made a covenant with his people and he continuously pursues them despite rebellion and disobedience and has continued to do so until today. Romans 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 20 kind of captures this theme where it says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's, that's the picture of Romans, of, of Genesis, is God pursues rebellious mankind. The outline of, of Genesis, it can be divided very simply into, into two parts. Uh, the first 11 chapters cover the primeval history of the world before Abraham. And I just wanted to use the word primeval because it's not a word I get to use often. It, it's, it's everything that happens before everything really begins to pick up. The first 11 chapters like give the foundation of, of earth and the very beginnings of man and God's relationship with man. And then in chapter 12, there's a noticeable change as God makes a covenant with Abraham. He, he calls him out of his, his homeland. And from there on, we begin to see the history of the patriarchs. And really, the outline of chapters 12 through, through 50 becomes the, each, each successive family, Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph, as we see God interacting with his people and him beginning to, to call out a people for his name. That's the simple two-part outline of Genesis. This morning, as we look at the first two verses, I came up with, again, a really super simple outline that, that goes along with the text. Your first point is in the beginning. The first three words of our Bible lay the foundation for, for like it sets the context for where we find ourselves. Uh, the, these, uh, these words tell us that we're speaking about the beginning of all things. We see here God is in the beginning. These verses tell us, first of all, that God is self-existent. This is not true of anything else. There's not one of us here who exists outside of ourselves. When Paul preached in Acts chapter 17, he told uh, the, the Greeks on Mars Hill, he said, it's in him we move and live and have our being. It's because of God that we exist. But him, he is the ultimate uncaused cause, the, the only one who has ever existed without creation. He has no origins. Which means, as the creator, he's answerable to no one. God does not have to give an account to us. When, when my teenager grabs his car keys and gets ready to go out, I, I ask him, where are you going? What are you planning to do? Who are you hanging out with? When are you going to be, be back? Uh, despite his... His opinion, uh, he's still accountable and answerable to his parents. But God is not. God has no one that he's accountable or answerable to. He doesn't have to check in with us before he does something. He doesn't take polls and surveys. He doesn't test the cultural waters to see if this might be okay with his constituents. 
God always has been, always will be. He does as he pleases. He exists. Whether we believe it or not, God is self-existent. This also means that, that he's self-sufficient. There's a lot of things that we need to exist. Otherwise, we don't exist. We need oxygen. We need, we need water. We need nourishment. Some of us take in a little too much of it. But God, he needs nothing. He is self-existent. He doesn't depend on anybody to be able to exist. Which also means that, and we've talked about this before, but as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, God was completely self-sufficient in, in, in and of himself before creation. So like he didn't make us so that he could be somehow enriched or have a more full existence. Like when he formed Adam and Eve, he didn't gaze into their eyes and say, you complete me. <laughs> God is. And so when, when we think about creation over the next couple of weeks, it's so important to keep in mind that that we're here because of his good pleasure. We're here to bring him glory. We're not here to exalt ourselves. The universe does not center around us. It's him. In the beginning, God. This also means that God has always existed. Moses wrote in Psalm 90. Yes, Moses wrote a psalm. Psalm 90, before, verse 2. He says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What a beautiful verse. What a powerful declaration that our God has always been. You know, sometimes our life gets out of control. It feels like it's out of control. But to be reminded that our God was around long before our problem came about. He always has been. He always will be. There's nothing that takes God by surprise because he's existed throughout all eternity and he's got it all planned out. He knows everything. He knows every possible uh, contingency. Our God has always been in the beginning. When none of this existed, there was God. And that's the second point. Number two, in the beginning, God. Genesis makes no, no uh, attempt to start out by proving God's existence. There's no pages about various rational explanations for the existence of God. It just throws us at it, th throws it at us. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. This this name that's used for God here is a common name for God throughout the Bible. It's the name Elohim. If I, if I understood my research correctly, if I did things correctly, I, I, I found that this was used 996 times to refer to God, this name Elohim. We know there's other names of God, and we'll come up against them in Genesis. Um, in fact, in this passage alone, in Genesis 1... Elohim is used 32 times. Genesis 1 wants us to know that the Bible is about God. He is the center point. 
And this term Elohim, is, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful word because it's, um, it's, used, it's used in the plural. And uh, some scholars call this the royal plural. This, this term Elohim emphasizes the majesty of God. It highlights his sovereign power. This one who we're about to read about, speaking the stars into existence, calling into creation all that is, he is majestic. His name speaks for itself. He's all-powerful. But what's, what's also pretty incredible here in, in, in the language is that normally in the Hebrew, that a, a plural noun would, would require a plural verb, different than the English language. But here, the, the plural noun Elohim is used with a singular, a singular verb. And many scholars think that that's, that's speaking of the triune God. It does, it's not to be translated, in the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth. Because it's used with a plural verb. In the beginning, God, this this triune God that the Bible will go on to more fully explain and unfold and unpack for us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit present here at the moment of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This passage reminds us that our God is a, is a living God. He's an active God. Many of our founding fathers, they, they believed in God, but they were deists. They, they believed in a God who sort of set the world into motion and then stepped step back, sat down with a bowl of popcorn to watch how everything unfolded, but was distant from his creation. But right here from the very beginning, we see a God who is near, a God who is alive, who is at work, breathing out his creative power and drawing near to this world. We see in his creative acts a God who is mighty, a God who is unlike any other. I love what A.W. Tozer said. He said, left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. You ever done that? Think of God like ourselves. He says, we want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can in some measure control. We need the feeling of security that comes from knowing what a God is like. And what he is like, of course, is a composite of all the religious pictures we've seen and all the best people we've known or heard about and all the sublime ideas we've entertained. What Genesis does is set God apart from the very beginning. Anytime we begin to shape God in our own image, to begin to think of God as as some spiritual slot machine or, or vending machine that I can go to to get from what I will or that I can begin to predict how he'll act. We need to go back to Genesis chapter one and be reminded that he is the majestic God who was in the beginning, who is over all. We are reminded right here at the outset that everything not just the book of Genesis, but I'm talking everything. It's about God. 
You and I, we're not at the center of the universe. Life does not revolve around us. And parents, if we're suddenly teaching our kids that through the, the way that we give them what they want or lack of discipline, we're painting an incorrect picture about God in our households. If we treat one another or our kids or whomever like the world revolves around us, all of a, time, all of a sudden we take the spotlight off of Genesis 1-1. We take the spotlight off of this God who always has been, who always will be, who is mighty, the one who is sovereign and in control of his creation. We put it on us, mankind. Scripture does not prohibit us to do so. Genesis 1 is all about God. May our lives, the, the way that we shape our, our values, the way that we spend our time and our money and our resources and our energy, may, may that come from a, a conviction that life is about God. This majestic God we encounter in his word. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a beautiful phrase, and it signifies, captures the entire universe and all that's within it. The verb created, this, this particular verb created, is used only of God in the Bible. And what we'll do next week is unpack the following verses that explain what, what is meant by creating the heavens and the earth as we look at the six days of creation. I want to just say a couple of things right here at the outset. In, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I want to keep reading here. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning the first day. And what I want you to see right here is the parallel between Genesis 1, 1 through 5 and John chapter 1, 1 through 5. Compare what you just heard to what John starts off with. In the beginning. You think that was an accident? You think that was a coincidence? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome. In the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and without void. And so God said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke and the universe was illuminated. Thousands of years later, he would send his son, not into physical darkness, because the triune God already brought light into the physical darkness, but he would send his son into the spiritual darkness. And just as he had done once before, he brought light into the world. See, God 
is a light-creating God. The beginning of creation, he breathes it forth. And in a little town called Bethlehem, the Word, the Son of God, God made flesh, brought light into a world that was spiritually dark. This morning, we need to know that God is still a light-bringing God. And if you walk in darkness, he longs to bring you into the light. The whole purpose for Jesus' coming was so that we no longer would remain in darkness, in sin, separated from God, but so that we might come into the light through his death upon the cross, his life-giving work. He sacrificed for us. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus is there in the moment of creation with the Father. And according to verse 2, with the Spirit. Did you notice that? The Spirit of God was hovering. We're back in Genesis 1. Was hovering over the face of the waters. Father, the Son, the Spirit, the triune God, Elohim, there in the moment of creation. In, in Genesis 2, Genesis 1 2 is, a, is, is an interesting verse. A lot of scholars have a lot of different opinions about what's going on. But it tells us that the earth was without form and void. It's the Hebrew phrase, tohu wabohu. And I just learned that because I thought that sounded really, really cool. I do not know Hebrew, but as I read that this week, I'm like, I got to put that in my notes because tohu wabohu uh, is a pretty cool phrase to tuck away somewhere. The earth was without form and void. And scripture tells us that there is, and whatever is going on here, and, and there's lots of opinions, but there's pitch darkness, there's no light. The earth is, is, a, is a formless desert where nothing can live. There's chaos. But there's a ray of hope even in the midst of this formless void. And it says the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. This, this word hovering turns up in Deuteronomy 32, 11, 11, and it speaks of an eagle who's fluttering over her young as she cares for them and protects them. We see God's Spirit here fluttering over this unformed creation of God, ready to bring beauty and symmetry and order out of this chaos. The Spirit, the word for Spirit means breath. And we see all throughout these verses that God is speaking things into creation and into being. God's creative breath hovered over the water and then began to speak into existence. And Psalms 33, 6 makes this connection. It says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of their mouth, by the breath of his mouth, all their host. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. <laughs> we needed only his breath to form the starry host. He needed only to speak. And the universe came into being. Can you imagine? 
I, I can speak and I can't even get my dog to sit. I can speak and a, and a person may or may not respond. You can call out and somebody may or may not hear you. But only God has creative power in his breath. God speaks and the universe obeys and comes into being. This morning as I was praying about this passage, I, I just, I was convicted because I sensed the Spirit of God saying, do you realize just how powerful I am? Can you even begin to fathom in your mind's eye what this would have looked like for me to speak and everything simply is? I sense God's Spirit saying, Jeremiah, you doubt me in so many ways. You doubt that this person could be healed. You doubt that this person could be saved. You may ask, but you don't believe. I'm the one who speaks and the universe obeys. My son is the one who speaks and the waves are stilled. Don't doubt my power. God tells us in Ephesians 3.20 that we're praying when we pray to the one who can do immeasurably far more than we can ask or think. Exceeding abundantly, the text says. He can do far away anything more than you can imagine. This is the, the God who speaks the universe into existence. This is the God that you and I pray to. The one that we can come to. And he hears. Next week we're going to look at some of the views of creation that are held by Bible-believing Bible Christians. And we're not going to belabor each of the, each of the points. You and I can be Bible-believing Christians and disagree on some of the ins and outs of the six days of creation. In fact, there's a lot of things that Scripture we can disagree about and still be brothers and sisters in Christ because we agree on the core tenets of the Christian faith. But I want to say to you this morning, listen very carefully, you cannot be a Christian and reject Genesis 1. You cannot cut Genesis 1-1 out of the Bible. It is that important. In the beginning, God. If you cross that out, you lose the rest. And there'll be unanswered questions. There'll be things that we can't wrap our minds around and how, it, how Genesis 1 connects with science. I think there's some very good answers out there but it probably will not satisfy all of the questions that we have. So we come to a place like Genesis or Hebrews 11.3 where it says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. At the end of the day, there are things in here that we won't be able to explain, but we step back and we believe that this God who creates with his spoken word 
is the God who, at the end of the day, has given us his word and wants us to know him. The creator of the universe wants a personal relationship with you and me. How unbelievable is that? As we close, I want to just ask you a couple questions. The book of Genesis begins with God. Here's my question for you. Does your life begin with him? The decisions that you make, the time that you have, your values, your passions, does it begin with God? Just as Genesis provides a foundation for the rest of scriptures, your relationship with God provides the foundation for the rest of your life. Everything you do, all your values must be built on God and his word. No other substitutes will do. In Isaiah 45:18, it says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. In this day and age, while we may not have physical idols that we pine for, there are a million idols that vie for our attention. A million substitutes that crave our heart. And we have a choice, just like Elijah did with the prophets of Baal. You remember that story on Mount Carmel? These wicked hundreds of prophets of Baal had come out against the one true God. And Elijah, he felt alone. He felt like there was no worshipers of Elohim in the land. And God called him up onto this mountain. He said, I'm going to show you something today. And they came up with an agreement that the, the, the God who destroyed, who consumed the sacrifice with fire, he would be the one true God. And so the prophets of Baal, they cried out to their, their God all day long, their gods, and cut themselves. And they screamed and they cried, and nothing happened. Their substitutes for God proved impotent, just as ours do. And then Elijah steps up, douses the sacrifice with gallons and gallons of water, and prays and cries out to God. And before all of those idol-worshiping prophets, fire came from heaven and consumed everything. God vindicated himself powerfully. And the words of Elijah to the people there on the mountain are the same words God brings to us today. He came near to the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. In Genesis 1-1, we meet the one true God. The God who speaks and the universe obeys. The God who always has been and who always will be. The God whose might is beyond comprehension. The God who is near to his creation. Won't you choose to follow him today? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, forgive us for painting too small of a picture of you in our hearts and in our lives. Forgive us for crafting a God after our own image, a God that we can put into a box, a God that we can manipulate, a God that we, we begin to think sometimes who's, who's there for us and to be our personal genie. A God who I know that I often believe is too small to show up and answer some prayer request that deep down, if I'm truly honest, I think he can handle it. Lord, take us back and remind us in a fresh way who this mighty God is that we serve. The world revolves around you and not us. The praise and glory and honor belongs to you and not us. And Lord, for all the different ways that we may have been drawn away to other gods, to other loves, would your word today, through the working of your spirit, bring us back to you and you alone. May you be exalted in our life. And may our hearts fill with awe and worship and wonder once again. The mighty God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.